You're listening to a podcast from 702. The Literature Corner. And we're going to be talking about how to get reading content to children as in general, but particularly now during the lockdown. And I'm joined by one of my favorite human beings, Eleanor Susulu, who is an executive director of Puku Children's Literature Foundation. Good morning, Eleanor. Uh, good morning, Eusebius. And today is World Book Day, so it's an appropriate time for this interview. Absolutely. How are you holding up during these lockdown times? Well, you know, lockdown for middle class privileged people is not what it is. I mean, lockdown is not the same for everybody. Sure. So, and I don't have small children with me. <laughs> I, I I really feel for the parents who mm. have little children and um, and are dealing with the issues of childcare. So, mm. uh, yeah. So lockdown, it, it's tough, but I shouldn't complain at all. Yeah, I suppose one should put these things in perspective. You have brought a friend with, and uh, why don't you introduce uh, our special uh, friend that's with us? Okay, uh, Sia Masugu is uh, one of my my children in literature, and he uh, is a graphic designer who decided to devote himself to children's books. Mm. So his first book was Sia Funda Isizulu which was inspired by his mother, who's a teacher of Isizulu. And it's a different alphabetic, it's a different alphabet of, um, mm. for Isizulu, uh, which has very interesting and uh, graphics. And I think he's really at the cutting edge of a new type of children's literature, a really indigenous but contemporary uh, children's literature that we need. Uh, and he'll talk about the books that he has uh, he has um, published since self published he used crowdfunding so he's also uh, part of a new publishing paradigm as well just mm. exploring new ways of getting books to people uh, so yeah he's one of the young people who is doing very exciting things Sia welcome to the conversation with that introduction no pressure. Yeah, how's it? You see, it's good to be here. Thank you for having us. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, we're right. uh, actually a bit nervous now after that intro from Ma'i. Hello, Ma'i. How are you? Fine, thanks. Fine, thanks, yeah. You can find Sia, by the way, on on Twitter if you want to go and check out his work at Sia Masuku. Uh, you'll see the description there on his account, graphic novelist. Um, we'll talk to, to Sia in a second. I want to talk about the big picture first, uh, Eleanor. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing how beautiful the world of books are. Children's books, books full stop, um, because it allows us to s- escape. It's not a substitute for walking in the park, going for a run and doing all the normal things we can't currently do, but it's, it's, it really is if you have the wherewithal and you have the content, assuming all the things we're going to talk about is in place. Uh, one of the more magical ways to try and deal with the psychosocial challenges of being in a period of lockdown is to be able to read for yourself, read for one another and escape into the world of books. Yes, yes, it's exactly that. And uh, I think books are also good for the our mental health at this time. Uh, we can choose the books that actually will be supportive to us. Mm. And 
Uh, and for parents with young children, uh, books are absolutely necessary. And I think that this this uh, pandemic has shown us the importance of children becoming independent readers. Because if children miss out on school and they are reading, mm. the impact is far less than if they're not reading at all. They will still be learning and learning independently. And that's the way education is going in the future that there's much more emphasis on independent learning. I had uh, Chinezi Chichioki on before this segment, and he was reflecting on a horror that him and I were puzzling through, Eleanor, which is the last thing we want during lockdown is to increase inequity in the education system. People have different levels of access to content, technology, and data. When it comes to content specifically in relation to stories and to books. In your experience, tell us what the lay of the land is. Is there a way for parents who are listening to this conversation to be able to access on their smartphones, other devices, uh, a beautiful range of of, of different kinds of content uh, where they can create that magic and, and, and read or have a child read independently? Or again, to come back to your, your checking yourself on class privilege, is it, is it really a case of some of us have got disproportionately amazing access to, to resources and, and others don't? And how do we solve for that? Yes, there's inequality on so many levels. As far as books are concerned, the inequality is that, of course, people who have are staying in informal settlements, won't have access, easy access to libraries. They don't have space because to have books in your house, you need a certain amount of space. Mm. So they wouldn't have book, physical books easily accessible. Mm. And then on the smartphones, thankfully there are, and I'll, I'll uh, you know, shout out to our partners, the Puku partners here, there's Nalibali, yes. who is doing a lot, and they, people can get on the Nalibali website. There's African Storybook uh, Project, africanstorybook.com. There is Room to Read. So there are various digital uh, um, resources mm. to, to, to get books. There is also Funza for the older, for teenagers. Funza does, uh, has uh, uh, stories online. And then from other parts of the world, you can get free stories. But then, of course, we get to the issue of data. And I know that there's an effort by uh, literacy organizations mm. uh, uh, to, to actually have zero rated, uh, data zero rated on some of these websites. Mm. And I hope that that battle is going to be won because it's, it's actually very, very important so that at least people can get that, that data. And then also WhatsApp for WhatsApp to be used to, yes. uh, uh, yeah. Sia, can I bring you in here? A conversation that, that I've had with Eleanor several times over the years is how much, you know, we do not sufficiently value children's authors. And I put that in scare quotes because one of the things that she had said to me before, both on this platform but also offline, is even that that idea, you know, that, that it's easy to be a so-called children's author. Uh, There's kind of like we don't give it the same kind of literary value as, I don't know, someone that might win a Sunday Times literary, literary award. And, of course, that's complete nonsense, right? We are just all authors full stop. 
And sometimes you will write a story that you think is for young people. I think of The Hidden Star by Cello Dager, published posthumously, which is wrongly labeled a children's novel. It's actually one that anyone can read of any age. Talk us through your journey as an author, who you are targeting nevertheless, because you need to have a target even if people read outside your intended target, and and why this is so important to you in terms of defining you artistically. Um, first, before I answer your question, Eusebius, I just want to add to what my Yvette said in terms of the partners who are, who are contributing towards the digital uh, book space. Uh, mm. There's actually Round the Fire as well, I might add, mm. and they've tweeted today that uh, they're offering free storybooks for young ones to read on their app. So yes, there are these avenues, and obviously now it's to challenge how the kids can access them uh, using data, etc. And, and now to come back to your, your question, Eusebius, in, in my experience, look, I mean, when I started with, in 2015 with Siafunda, my intention was to do this book for, for lower primary school kids in Soweto and Femi. And uh, what I found that people who are grown up, uh, meaning adults, are also looking at this book and thinking, wow, I, I never knew there was a word like this in the Sizuri. So... I realize that more than just the language, the language barrier is, is, is quite an interesting one because, or the language dynamic rather, is quite an interesting one because, um, sure, it's, as far as I understand, I was sitting with uh, our editor, Bumin uh, Jobe, and she, she was saying that the, this is basic, this is you. But then you get grown-ups who are struggling with the, with the language. So even though my target was for kids, but... Um, I found that even grown-ups enjoy the books and and and, and learn and learn a little from them. So yeah, that that there is an important gap, uh, Sia, and it is important because if we don't see ourselves in books, if we don't see our language um, being used for different registers, including academic terminology or even way less hectic than that, expressing the full range of human experiences, then we will think that. You know, the gold standard of being fully human is English or Afrikaans or wherever the hegemony lies. Um, and, and what has been the reception to, to you trying to, to challenge that kind of narrative? Yeah, it is, it has been very interesting in that, um, I mean, we still, uh, I mean, let's be honest, you still find the majority of readers buying books written in English. Clearly, because they're, they're they're very used to they're used to reading in English, um, and and yeah, no, no harm in that. But I, I'm I, I just got to a point where I realized I think I went to one of these big bookstores uh, looking for a book in my in my mother tongue, which is Isuzulu, and it was just there, there was a little corner that there was there was designated for indigenous languages, and in that like half of them is Afrikaans, right? And then you get a few. A few of the other indigenous languages, i.e., it's a culture, this is Setuan and Setuati, and this is sort of. But they, I mean, to find Chivanda, that's been very tricky, you know, and I, I empathize for the marginalized languages because uh, I wish that there could be more, uh, we could have more access to them. I'm still trying to see if we could get more books in those languages. Mm-hmm. And um, look, I mean, I mean, there's so much, honestly, the way what I've seen in the industry, there's a lot of content in Itizuru now, uh, especially because I'm working within the language. 
and, and people are buying the, the, the books in indigenous languages. But my concern now is that how do we tap into the, the other less, less known languages, like Ma'i, uh, which we call within the workshop, uh, and with the book in Nama and Nu, mm. and, and other indigenous languages. Because if you look at, uh, Wikipedia will tell you that there's way more than 11, well, the, the well over 50 indigenous languages in South Africa. Mm. It's just that we have these official ones that we stick to. So we really need to look at that and, and, and scrutinize it carefully. This is so important, isn't it, Eleanor? Because the, the, the cultural and the social cost and consequences of language chauvinism are real and shouldn't be underestimated. Yes, certainly. And, you know, one of the persons I would suggest you get on your show is Mabuto Kid Sitole, hmm. who many of know as an actor, but he's, a, he's an activist around language. Hmm. And we've done a partnership with uh, his organization, Ilifa and UNISA around promoting uh, content in indigenous languages. Mm. And uh, kids have this thing, he says, we are committed, we are in the process of committing linguicide. <laughs> we, are, we are by just destroying, not investing, ignoring our languages. And I, I would like to make an appeal to government. The president has talked about relief for a lot of things, which is good. But I really want to talk about translators, African language practitioners, writers, editors, who really struggle. I mean, as Puku, we would love to pay people, but we struggle with this because it's difficult to get funding to support African language translation. I was very sad with this COVID-19 to uh, um, see on Twitter an organization asking for volunteers to translate COVID-19 material into our various languages. And someone pointed out that people should be paid for this. It's important work. And so, you know, funding was difficult before this to get uh, for African language content and African language practitioners, professionals. And I, I worry that it's going to get even more difficult. And the inequalities in language hmm. are going to increase. It's 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 yeah. It's hard to even begin to understand why there isn't greater level of state support, Eleanor. Because it makes business sense. This is not just about support. It is an investment. It's an investment yes. in the cultural capital of your society. Yeah. And beyond that, right, I, I thought by now, Eleanor, that it is trite that you get better educational and therefore economic outcomes if mother tongue reading and early education is promoted. Yes, certainly. You know, we had, you know, the young people during these must fall were calling for decolonized and demanding from government a decolonized education. Mm. Unfortunately, there was not enough packaging or unpackaging of that. What does decolonized education mean? Mm. And I think at the heart of that is language, books in all languages for children from the earliest ages. And also for parents, for black parents, I think one of the things that people don't appreciate or have confidence in is that the more words a child knows by the time they start reading, so we're talking about pre-reading, yeah. before, by the time they start reading, the more words a child knows, the better a reader they will be. Hmm. So, and, and it's words in any language. Hmm. 
So, you know, many black South Africans are multilingual, especially urban areas, a place like Soweto, like my husband's and his siblings speak four, three, four languages yeah. and some more in some. That multilingualism is not used as a strength and built on in the education system. Mm. And the way you build it on it is to have you have the spoken language, you also need the literary language and the development of the literary language. Absolutely. And that strength is not built on. Mm. So I think the, the reading ecosystem, the reading and book development ecosystem, this issue of language is extremely important. And yeah, we'll continue to fight for increased investments for, for people working in the space. Sia, let's hear a little bit more about your personal journey. Eleanor told us a truncated version of it. Where did your love of stories come from? I was fortunate enough, I suppose, to have books at home growing up because um, my mom's a teacher. And I suppose both my parents invested a lot in our education as, as kids. Mm. So for that reason, I was very lucky. But uh, also saying that we, we had... We had all these books, right, with uh, with kids uh, with blonde hair and blue eyes playing in snow, which which was, I mean, something we couldn't really relate to, but it was a different world as well. I, I know for me personally, and it made me uh, really think about the, I mean, what else is what else is out there. But the first book that really got me uh, staring at it uh, more than its actual storyline is. Uh, just there in the wedding. And um, I mean, uh, that story, um, because seeing a black face for me had a huge impact in the way I saw stories and in the way I saw myself in books as well, as a black child. And and I think growing up and being more more curious about, about stories, obviously, um, I, I just got to a point where I, I realized that, okay, cool, I could draw. And, and, and really writing was something I just did, uh, you know, keeping a journal was, was really taboo. I don't know if it's probably still is. <laughs> to keep, uh, so, so I kept it, and, and I, none of my family members knew about it. <laughs> so those sort of things, and, and trying to combine all my skills and, and seeing if I could do that, uh, that one thing and just contribute to the school. And since then, it's been, okay, the, the kids are loving what I'm doing. Yes. Uh, and... Um, and some of the people who are seeing the work that we've been doing at Sia Funda. And I say we because we've become quite a, a, a tight unit. I mean, in terms of the, our online presence, it's now solid. And I'm happy with what we've achieved so far. And it's something that I hope that we can continue to do, provided that we do get the support that's, that's keeping, us, uh, keeping us out there. And we, yeah, absolutely. Um uh, Eleanor, and this is the thing, I, I flip between talking about books and stories deliberately because stories become the written word. But in the meantime, and, and we did feature Nali Bali on a couple of weeks ago because they also have, as you rightly say, amazing online content that can be easily accessed. You can read a story a day. They've got all sorts of other what was a holiday program that's become a lockdown program. So there are resources there and folks must just access it online. But just just give some tips to to families with young ones, what they can do even outside of trying to access content. And what I mean by that is things like uh, games you can play where you start a story, someone else 
then continues the story because it, it, it really is about activating the imagination. There's an oral tradition we haven't, we don't even have time to go into. It is not only what is written down or what can be found on a website that can be the basis of storytelling. Yes, I think it's important. You know, we tend to also talk too much about reading sometimes yeah. <laughs> and don't talk about oral traditions. Mm. And I think one of the things that uh, many of us have lost culturally are the family histories and family praise names. I think for parents, especially urban parents, just talking to the children about the family who is who, how they are related to each other, the family praise names. You know, I was very fortunate, and I think it helped me to think of even writing a children's book, was that my mother was not a storyteller in the conventional sense, but in, in relating to us, especially about the families, who's who, how they related to each other, um, you know, just the family tree going way back. And it's not about praising your family. It's just about saying what is. The, all yes. the family stories, bad and good, whether mm. they are bad and good, because you learn something. Absolutely. And you know, that uncle who embarrasses you, <laughs> says the wrong thing at the wrong time, he's got a story and it's important. Mm. And I think, because literature is about, uh, I, I look at the, the, the mirror and windows view of literature. Yes that it should be a mirror where you look at yourself. And ideally, a child should be able to get a clear idea of their own identity. Then they look outside the window. Mm. So you, you move from the particular to the universal. And that's the problem with our education system. That's right. A colonial education system that we started with the universal. We started with Shakespeare instead of starting with Credo Mutua. Hmm. And, and there's nothing wrong. I'm not saying you mustn't have Shakespeare in a decolonized education. Mm. But what I'm saying is it should come through the it's lens of your own storytelling. 100%. So people yeah. like Dinam Shope yeah. and um, John Kani, Sindhuwe Magona are really, really important. Absolutely. Sia, why don't you end for us? We've got a minute left maximum, but I want to hear you. Do you have a copy there of your, of your work? Can you read for us? I do. Yes. Uh, the sound, is, the sound yeah, the sound is slightly muffled, but for obvious political, technical reasons, I want you to do so. So I'll give you just a minute or so. Just, just elevate your your voice a little bit and then go for it. Okay, I'm gonna give it. A, I'm gonna give it a shot. It's a picture book, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, you can follow the story. How saubona ngubani kamalaku yebo saubona. Kuno <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you, Sia. Yeah, that's stunning. Thank you for coming on the show. Much appreciated. And thanks for the work you do. The same to Eleanor Susula. Eleanor, always a treat. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. Bye.